John chapter 1, verse 14. I've been looking at verses that are not necessarily considered Christmas verses, but I think you will all agree that every verse that I've picked out for this month, for this Advent season, has certainly been about the birth of Christ. It's said that if the three wise men were three wise women instead, they would have asked for directions sooner. <laughs> and they would have arrived on time. I'm not so sure that's true. They would have helped deliver the baby. They would have cleaned the stables. And they would have brought more practical gifts to the baby. And they would have brought a casserole as well. A few years ago, my wife and son and I were privileged, uh, as we were touring the New York Library, we were privileged to be taken upstairs. I still don't understand why she did this for us, but in the kindness of her heart, she unlocked an uh, obscure office that we were just poking our heads into. And she said, you want to see Charles Dickens' desk? And I said, we sure do. And, and there it is from Great Britain now in New York City. And she says, not everybody gets to see this. And she unlocked the door and she allowed us just to walk into the room. We couldn't go too far in. And there it was, Charles Dickens' desk. And you know something? It was not a grand desk. It was not too much wider than this pulpit. It was rather humble when you consider all the masterpieces that were created on that desk. But the reality is, is that even the, 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 the compilation of all those masterpieces uh, do not compare to the beauty of the Christmas story. One reason is because Dickens wrote fiction. And what we see here in the scriptures is fact historical fact, life-transforming fact. Dickens is certainly entertaining, but this is far more than entertaining. It's nurturing and it's nourishing for the soul. The details regarding the birth of Jesus Christ are amazing. Uh, this morning we just read from Luke chapter 2 about the field workers who witnessed the magnificent angelic choir announcing the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the Savior. And these men were certainly afraid. You saw that, right? Some were just simply perplexed. What in the world is going on? Some of them were amazed and they wanted to go and investigate. Some must have been speechless. After a rather long day of herding sheep, their dark, quiet rest was interrupted by an eruption of angels and the blast of voices singing overhead from below the clouds. God went to the lowliest of people in that culture, in that society, as a reminder. A reminder to us that if he is willing to go to them, he is certainly willing to come to us, to you, and he has. Take note of John chapter 1, verse 14. The Gospel of John chapter 1, 
verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's land there. Let's expose what's there in this one sentence. The Christmas story is summarized here in this one sentence. It begins with the reality that the Word is God. I find it interesting that if you go to the very beginning of the Bible, the very first verse, Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God created. Here in John 1-1, it says, in the beginning the Word created. And then John quickly explains that both verses are saying the same thing. For the Word is God, and the Word was God, he says. This not only tells us something about the eternal nature of God, but it also underscores the complexity of God, doesn't it? When the universe began, the Word already existed. Because the Word was God, the Word created time and space. And you're probably, probably wondering, what, what is this word, or why is Christ referred to as the word? The word here is um, from the Greek idea, classical Greek idea of the logos, L-O-G-O-S, logos. And, and in the Greek mind, in the Greek philosophy, the logos was an, an eternal understanding of truth. A, a truth that was present from the very get-go, from the be very beginning of time of creation. And it was a truth that was available to every individual who would dare seek it out. In fact, to the Greek mind, the logos, the word, was the truth behind the truth. It was the reality behind the reality. It, it, it was the the all-consuming reality from which all other truth came from, the Logos. However, no one could really tell you what the Logos was. They say it's there, but we don't know what it is. What truth is forever present? And so then comes John. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he takes this very secular Greek concept and he explains it in Christian terms. He says, the truth behind all truth, the reality and the reason behind all reality and reason is God the Son. Come to us as Jesus Christ. Well, we learn quite a bit just by looking at the first five verses in John chapter 1. Let's do that. Look at the first five verses. You see in verse 1 that he existed before the creation of the universe. Verse 3, that he created this world, this cosmos. Verse 2, that this word coexisted eternally with God. And verse 1, he himself is God. Verse 4, the word here is also, the logos is also described as light. Again, verse 4, and this light gives life to men. 
and verse 5. The darkness is not able to overcome this light. And this is the word, the logos, that became flesh. The word became flesh, we're told here at verse 14. And this, of course, is the Christian uh, hope. It, it is the Christmas story. It, it is the incarnation. A, a wonder that I think is often lost in the sentimentality, the romanticizing of Christmas. Now, I'm no Mr. Potter. I'm not the Grinch. Okay. I, I think there ought to be sentimentality in Christmas. There ought to be. It's a beautiful thing. However, I'm afraid that we are more taken by the sentimentality of Christmas than we are by the wonder of Christmas. The sentimentality overrides the wonder. We are more taken, I think, by the, the beauty of this innocent newborn baby being born to this young couple in a stable. When the reality here really should be focused on God became flesh. Let, let me put it this way. Ask yourself this. When you see a picture of the manger, what comes to mind? Is it the innocence of a newborn that frames your thoughts? Maybe the struggles of a mother giving birth in a stable along with this bewildered young husband, Joseph? Or is it, when you see a picture of the manger, is it that God set aside his glory and privileges and became flesh? Most of us will say the first, not the second. Most of us will say, well, what comes to mind is the innocence and the beauty of a newborn baby. <sighs> and we forget that God gave up his glory and became flesh. The wonder of Christmas. The wonder of Christmas. The creator of flesh, the creator of humanity itself became flesh. In order to live among men, he had to become a man. In order to identify with man, he had to become a human. In order to represent man before God the Father, the Son had to become a man. In order to atone for our sins, he had to become a human being. Stephen Cole writes it this way. He says, if Jesus is not God, then we are sinners without a Savior. If Jesus were only a man, then he died for his own sins. And we are still in our sins. We have no hope. In order to reconcile sinful people to the holy God, Jesus must be God in human flesh. And not only did the logos become flesh, but the logos, the word, came to us. You see it there? Verse 14. Well, if you go back to verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, the Word, the Word, the Logos, was with God. But now we look at verse 14, it says, And now the Word suddenly is with us. The Word dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt 
among us. Now, that word there, dwelt, in the original language is interesting because it, it carries the idea of encampment. It carries the idea of living in a tent. In other words, I'm moving along. This is not my permanent home. Jesus Christ never came to make this his permanent home. Rather, it's his temporary dwelling while he's on mission. He made his dwelling place, his temporary place here with us. Since the very beginning, God made it so that we would know him. He has generally revealed himself to us in creation. And, and what I mean by generally is I mean to everybody in general. He has revealed his existence through creation. In other words, look at creation and it points to a creator. There's a God out there. We see that he exists when we look at creation. You know what else we see about God when we look at creation? We see his creativity and we see his power and his wisdom. His knowledge. When we look at creation, we also see his willingness to sustain what he has created. But above all, when we look at creation, we see God's desire to be known. He wants us to know him. God has also revealed himself generally through conscience. And again, by generally, I mean to all of us in general through the fact that we have a conscience. What I mean is that, like God, we know right from wrong. Like God, we are moral beings. Penguins are not moral beings. Neither are giraffes. Dinosaurs were not moral beings. We are. We are created in the image of God. We are moral beings. For we were created to reflect him and to know him so that we would be able to worship him but in all reality as this world grows darker and darker seeing the reality of god becomes increasingly more difficult it's like cataracts it comes very slowly i think we all suffer from spiritual cataracts it eventually blinds us and yet god does want for us to know him so here we see that the word became flesh and made our world his dwelling place. We did not have to go to him. We could not go to him. So he came to us. God made himself accessible. It's a wonderful truth. That's what Christmas is all about. God made himself accessible. And the logos revealed himself for who he truly is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, he has come to us and he has revealed himself to us. We have seen his glory. And what a splendid glory it is. A brilliant light. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. In other words, what we witness in Christ is the glory of God himself. And this is truly a full disclosure of himself. However, he did not come to us with his name tattooed across his forehead. He did not come to us with a scepter in his hand and say, I am the king. Written across his chest were not the words king of kings and lord of lords. 
No. And yet his glory is very much exposed. Beams of divine glory penetrate through the shroud of his flesh. At the transfiguration, for example, for sure, we saw his glory. But you'll say, oh, but only three people saw that. That's true. That's true. But you know, we also see the glory of Jesus Christ in this story here, the miraculous birth that he was born to a virgin. That's his glory. We, we see the glory of Jesus Christ in the fulfillment of prophecies. The fulfillment of over 300 Bible prophecies. Jesus Christ fulfills those. The science of probability attempts to determine the chances that a given event will actually occur. And if you take not all 300 prophecies, but just eight, just eight of the prophecies regarding Jesus Christ, what are the chances that eight of those prophecies would be fulfilled? Well, the answer is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That would be 10 with 17 zeros behind it. That's the chance that eight of these prophecies would be fulfilled. Uh, according to one professor, he says that would be the equivalent of taking silver dollars. How many? 100 quadrillion silver dollars and lay it all out across the state of Texas. Big state. If you were to take 100 quadrillion half dollars and lay it across the state of Texas, you would have a layer two feet deep. And you were to take just one of those coins and put a red X on it and then toss it across the state and then just shovel everything together, mix everything together from Corpus Christi to Amarillo, just shake everything together and then tell somebody blindfolded, you have one chance to bend over and pick the silver dollar with the X. What are the chances of him actually being able to find that one coin? Well, the chances are just the same that the prophets would have had in writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in one man at any point in history. And yet Jesus Christ fulfilled not only eight, but over 300. You see the glory of Christ? You see the glory of Christ? The angelic announcement proclaimed his glory. The guiding star pointed to his glory. The miracles of Jesus Christ as well. Not to mention the wisdom of Jesus Christ pointed to his glory. But you know what I also see his glory in? His sinlessness. He did not sin. We see his glory in his perfect, righteous life. And we also see his glory in his selflessness. He was not in any way selfish. So selfless was Christ that he was willing to be a sacrifice for you. You see his glory? His glory was certainly exposed. Glory is that radiant divine beauty and power that encompasses God. And some people will argue that, well, it, it was not fully exposed, but rather it was cloaked by his humanity and the limitations of humanity. But I think I made a good point, a good, a good argument for how we do see his glory. 
not in a vibrant light, but in a real and practical way. The glory of our God. And some people will argue, well, I was not there to see all that. How am I to see his glory? I was not standing next to Peter. I was not standing next to the Pharisees or any of the disciples either. Well, my friends, how do we see the glory of God then? Through the gospel. We see the glory of God right here. The gospel of Jesus Christ conveys his glory to us. It displays his glory so that we can see it. In fact, we have a greater advantage to see God's glory through the scriptures than the people in the days of Christ did as eyewitnesses. We have God's written word, the gospel. And through the Bible, we have more than just one episode that maybe we would have witnessed. Maybe we were there present to witness the healing of a blind man or, or the raising of a dead or the wisdoms of his sermon or or, or, or the announcements by the angel. No, we have much more. We have the complete story. We have not just one or two episodes. We have all of the episodes weaved together so that together when we read the Gospels, we see the glory of Jesus Christ. We have a much greater advantage over even John who writes the Gospel. In, in, in the Gospel of John, the same Gospel towards the end, chapter 17, in verse 20, uh, the prayer of Jesus Christ is recorded just before he goes to the cross. And look at what Jesus Christ prays. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the 12 disciples. I'm not only asking for these, but for those who will believe in me through their word. I'm praying for those who will in due time believe in me because of the gospel message. You see, we have a greater advantage than even John did, because we have the whole message here. Christ was praying for those who would yet come, 2,000 years later even, to Christ. Faith comes by hearing, not seeing. Romans chapter 10. You would think that Judas Iscariot, or maybe the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who witnessed all these things, you would think that they would have good reason to believe, and yet they did not. Well, my friends, through the scriptures, through the Bible, we have an advantage that is greater than any of what those people experienced. An advantage greater than even being there. Faith comes by hearing. And lastly, what we see here in this one verse, verse 14, is that the word gives to us grace and truth. It says that Jesus Christ, this word, this logo, is full of grace and truth. In the Old Testament tent, or in the Old Testament tabernacle, uh, there was law, but there was no grace. There was law, but there was no grace. A and it merely pointed to truth. It, it, it was a, a series of types, of types of Christ being conveyed through that tabernacle. But there was that truth itself. My friends, you look here and you see that in Christ, the Logos, we have the two great essentials that every person needs. In Christ, we have grace, and in Christ, we have truth. Two essentials for life. 
Grace, because we're sinners and we need God's help. Truth, in order to keep us on the side of God, to give us life, so that we would be able to see reality realistically. Grace and truth. The Logos, Jesus Christ, is the Word. And he has the fullness, not just in part, but the fullness of grace and truth. Grace that opens the gate so that we can approach God and truth so that we might rightly know God and abide in him. So that we may correctly see who God is. A truth that will instruct us, a reality that makes our lives, lives real. And as the fullness of grace and truth, the word, the logos, Jesus Christ, can intercede for us, even as he instructs us. In Christ, we have the fullness of knowledge and compassion, grace and truth. And so in this sense, Christ is then the light of the world. It is a brilliant light. He is a brilliant light. Not even the darkness, the darkest darkness can overcome this light. Look at verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. This light is actually for you. It is for us. Verse 9 reads, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Amen? Christmas. Merry Christmas. Christ is the measure of all truth, the Logos. And he has come to us so that we would receive him and in receiving him, we would find life. And in finding life, we would know the light of the world. Christmas is about the word. The word is God. The word became the God-man. The word came to us. The word reveals his glory to us. And the word gives us grace and truth. That, my friends... It's Christmas.